Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with The Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we're reading Ruth at the Crossroads, a romance of St. Valentine's Day, by Molly E. Jameson. This story was first published in The People's Friend on February 14th, 1916, and is narrated for us by Friend Fiction Editor Lucy. Over to Lucy. Just at the junction where four roads met it stood, the old grey house whose somewhat forlorn stance had given it the name by which it had been known for generations. There had been Westertons at Crossroads as long as anyone could remember. Soon, and that was the endless pity of it, there would be Westertons there no longer. For the two who abode now alone in the old house at the parting of the ways were women, aunt and niece and with their passing the ancient name which had once been so honoured in the countryside would die out for evermore. It was a desolate enough place now, the old grey house of crossroads. Though once upon a day its walls and sunny garden pleasance had been wont to resound with the dear and happy voices of children. For the Westertons had been noted for what the village folk approvingly termed their long families. And until this latest generation of all, there had never been any talk of the improbability of succession. But the last Westerton bride who had come to the old house had died young, leaving behind her but a son and daughter to comfort the husband left so desolate and all alone. People said that it was for her father's sake that Ellen Westerton had never married, sacrificing her life first to him and then to the little orphan daughter whom John Westerton, her sailor brother, left behind him when the sea claimed him. If it pleased Ellen to abide in the old grey house, alone save for her memories and little Ruth, it was, after all, her own business. Twenty years ago she might have wedded Miles Hathaway, had she cared. And now Miles Hathaway, whether for love of Ellen Westerton or otherwise, was a wanderer in a distant land. And so little Ruth, shadowed perhaps always slightly by her aunt's stronger personality, grew from childhood to girlhood, from girlhood to shy and demure womanhood. In the old grey house, which was the only home she had ever known. And if Ruth had her dreams, Aunt Ellen wotted not at all of them, which was, after all, rather a pity as Aunt Ellen had in her youth had dreams of her own, and would have understood. Aunt Ellen merely told herself that it was just as well Ruth liked a quiet life, and had no flyaway notions such as usually belong to the young. Yet at heart she was sorry for Ruth a little too, for Ruth seemed to have missed her youth, and all the pleasant things of youth, as Aunt Ellen in her girlhood had known them. Sorrier, perhaps, because Ruth, to outward seeming, appeared to miss so little for herself. If only she'd known what it was to have a lover, 
Aunt Ellen would muse, her own blue eyes reminiscent and far away as she thought of Miles Hathaway. Miles Hathaway, who was still so peculiarly her own, though he had been gone for over twenty years from her. They had parted in anger, he in a man's fine fury, because she would not forsake her father and follow him halfway across the world at his bidding. They had parted in anger, yet she knew that he loved her then, would love her forever, that, alive or dead, the chain of her own undying passion knit their two hearts together in this world and the next. And it was because of Miles Hathaway and her own unforgettable memories that Aunt Ellen grew so tenderly pitiful of Ruth, poor little Ruth, who in all her twenty-odd years of life had never known what it was to possess a lover. It lies with me to do something. I've got to do something, Ellen Westerton told herself, and there was the sudden light of determination in her blue eyes. Years ago I had my chance and put it from me, and now Ruther's got to have hers. Surely, if I puzzle long enough over it, I shall find out a way. So that is how, at Miss Ellen Westerton's own invitation, arrived one winter day at the old house at the crossroads a wounded officer, come to recuperate until such time as those in authority bade him rejoin his regiment again. Ruth looked a trifle blank when she heard her aunt bid old Barbara, their solitary servant, prepare the best chamber for their stranger guest. But Aunt Ellen only smiled her objections down. We've got to do our bit, child, in this big war, and if our bit isn't succouring the sick and wounded, I don't know what's much better. Here we are, with a large, empty house, And if I didn't tell you sooner that I'd written, volunteering, hospitality, it was only because I thought you'd maybe want to dissuade me from the idea. Not but that it may be dull enough for a young man here, but I'll look to you to cheer him up, Ruth. A taste of young society will be good for you, as well as for him. Oh, I couldn't, Aunt Ellen, Chai Ruth said, and blushed as red as a peony. Aunt Ellen only nodded smilingly and encouragingly, and quite as one who knew all about it. She was telling herself that, whatever happened, Ruth must never guess that it was the thought of her niece's loneliness quite as much as any patriotic desire to assist her country in its hour of need, which had first spurred her to this new adventure. Shy, quiet, little Ruth she'd have her chance. Everything worked out very pleasantly in Aunt Ellen's little scheme, for Captain Harry Dunn, the young Canadian, proved himself to be one of the most agreeable and adaptable of visitors, and won even the unsusceptible heart of old Barbara from the first. He came like some wind of early, freshening spring into the grey old house of Crossroads, dispersing the cobwebs of want and custom which so long had gathered there. True, it was Aunt Ellen whom, even from the very first, he chose to select as a confidant. Aunt Ellen, with her wide, large charity and understanding heart. Little Ruth would sit by, well content to be merely a listener, 
though it was somewhat to Aunt Ellen's chagrin. Things, though otherwise entirely satisfactory, were not turning out quite as Aunt Ellen had either wished or desired, and yet she felt herself powerless in any way to move in the matter. So time went on, until Captain Harry Dunn was an invalid no longer, but under orders to betake himself to the nearest military camp, which happened to be only a few miles away. There he was to remain in partial command throughout the first early months of spring, after which his health might be sufficiently re-established to permit of his returning once more to the front. It was with real regret that Ellen Westerton parted from the bright-faced young soldier, from whose coming she had hoped such great things. She slipped away while Ruth and he made their adieu, though indeed they were such farewells as all the world might safely have heard. I've had jolly times here, Miss Ruth, and now it's more than a bit rotten saying goodbye. But I'll come back if you and Miss Westerton let me. After all, I shan't be so very far away. Yes, come back. Aunt Ellen will like to have you come back, Ruth said, and smiled up at him in the half-shy manner which Harry Dunn, though he was not particularly interested in Ruth, had always found rather charming. He thought she was like some sweet, innocent... Puritan maiden, as she stood there in her simple little grey gown, with its white sprigged muslin collar and cuffs. Now he bent his handsome head just a trifle nearer her own. And you, won't you like to have me come back too, Miss Ruth? Such a quiet little thing you are, and have never told me whether you were glad to see me or sorry to have me go. He had put the question in a sort of idle gallantry. But now something new, unexplainable, tugged at his heartstrings as he looked down at her. To have the power to awaken that shy, half-childish face to life, to watch the love-light flash from those grey eyes, now only demurely sweet. And then Captain Harry Dunn stood suddenly to attention, as Aunt Ellen, all unaware of the pleasant tete-a-tete which she was interrupting, joined them once again. He turned to her, holding out his hand. I'm off then, Miss Westerton, and again, many, many thanks for all your kindness. And don't forget that St. Valentine's Day comes next week and that I've promised to send you a valentine. However far off I may be in the days to come, you may know that I shall always be thinking of you. Dear lad, Aunt Ellen said, and laid her hand upon the stalwart young shoulder. The promised valentine came for Aunt Ellen upon the morning of the 14th of February. A box of sweetly scented purple violets, among the delights of which Aunt Ellen fairly revelled until calmer thoughts came upon her. She sat, twiddling the card which purported that the flowers came with love from H.D. round and round in her fingers. A perplexed frown upon her usually placid, good-tempered face. What does an old woman like me want with valentines when poor little Ruth must go wanting? If only he'd sent it to her instead of to me, it would have made all the difference. Isn't there anything I could do to alter things? With Aunt Ellen, judging by recent events, the plan was to do. With marvellous celerity, she returned the violets to the box, tied it up again, and discovering the label addressed to have been hurriedly written in pencil, had just adapted it to her purpose when Ruth, 
later than usual, appeared in the open doorway. She glanced with a certain mild surprise at the parcel lying by her plate, for, though gifts came but seldom to the old house at the crossroads, Ruth was not one to become unduly excited over anything. A parcel? For me? That's nice, and it's St Valentine's Day morning too. Haven't you got anything, Aunt Ellen? I thought I heard Captain Dunn say something about sending you a valentine. Aunt Ellen shook her head, smilingly. Things were shaping better than she had hoped, and she might, should occasion arise, be able to explain later to Captain Harry Dunn. Why? Ruth said slowly, and again, why? As presently the open box stood before her, the whitely gleaming card looking up at her from the wealth of purple bloom. Aunt Ellen nodded, still smilingly. I fancied I guessed the writing, but still I wasn't going to say until you opened it. Your first valentine, isn't it, child? Well, you couldn't have had a prettier one. And I can't think of anything nicer than that Captain Dunn should have had such a thought for you. Ruth looked up with widely questioning eyes in which the radiance of joy still lingered. So long she had accustomed herself to being slighted, passed over in favour of others. And now it would seem that she was to be accorded homage for herself alone. She slipped the card she held, half shyly, into the elder woman's hand. Do you see that, Aunt Ellen? His love! Do you think he can really mean it? For always he has seemed such a hero, so far above such a quiet little thing like me, and yet he must always have cared. It seems too beautiful to be anything but a dream, and yet I think I should break my heart if I was to wake up and find that it was not true. Aunt Ellen, accepting the proffered card, frowned in her perplexity. In her haste to make things pleasant for Ruth, she had ignored the incriminating message of the card, filially suitable from a young man to an older woman, totally out of place at the present juncture. She met Ruth's eyes, radiant, triumphant, wistful, and realised with a sudden rush of remorse that it was too late now to draw back. She must carry this thing through with a high hand, whatever be its ultimate denouement. For one golden day, at least, her child should taste happiness. Let the morrow bring with it what it might. Young men usually mean what they write, do they not, you silly child? You have always been so quiet with Captain Harry, such a reserved little mouse yourself, that he has had but little chance to tell you what he thinks of you. For men are strange, little Ruth, and never stranger than when they try their hands at clumsy wooing. Give Captain Harry time, and there is no saying what a gallant and courtly lover he may prove himself to be. You know best. You always know best, Aunt Ellen, little Ruth said. And the radiance was still in her grey eyes. But it was the elder woman who bore the heavier heart through that still faintly sunny February day. She had time to think out a hundred plans, all of which she dismissed as absolutely useless, ere 
at the last fading of afternoon, she looked from an upper chamber window and saw Captain Harry Dunn come up the garden path between the flowering snowdrops. She had meant to open to him when he came, do her best to explain matters. But now all power seemed to go from her as she heard Ruth go singing downstairs. Ruth, who, also from her chamber, had watched the young soldiers coming and was now hastening to bid him welcome. Poor little Ruth. Her golden day had been too short and now it was to have its end at last. But it was a radiant Ruth who now sped down the wide stairway. A radiant Ruth who flung the great door ajar to admit Captain Harry. She still wore her grey gown, but she had fastened a posy of his violets in her waist belt, and her usually pale cheeks flaunted their most daring of roses. That, and the light in her grey eyes, caught him, held him, as he stood there upon the familiar threshold. Suddenly, to him she was a Ruth new created, and that for him alone. He stretched out wondering hands. Ruth, he said half-dazedly, and again, Ruth. Their hands met in one long, close clasp. The shining in her eyes grew, deepened. He stooped and kissed her. To Harry Dunn, at that supreme moment, it seemed as though all life had been leading up to just this, the knowledge that this wonderful new Ruth was the one woman in the world for him. When he spoke, his voice had a sudden, triumphant little thrill in it. Ruth, I never knew, till now, that I have loved you, little sweetheart, must always have loved you, though I never guessed it. Have I frightened you, dear? Has it come as big a surprise to you as it has to me? What have you done to yourself, little girl, that you should suddenly look so beautiful? Done? Why? I have done nothing, said Ruth, and blushed shyly and radiantly once again in her turn. For I never knew either, Harry, not till your dear Valentine came. Then I understood, knew, though even yet it seems almost like some lovely dream. Are you quite, quite sure that we shall not both presently waken and go back to actual life again? Harry Dunn put his arm about her as they went through the wide, dim, old hall. There was the dawning as of a new heaven and earth in his eyes as he looked down into the grey orbs uplifted so trustfully to his own. We shall never go back to actual life again, either you or I, sweetheart. Our beautiful dream is to last us to the end of both our lives. But about the valentine... I don't quite understand. He looked up as Aunt Ellen came slowly, and in her own stately way, down the broad staircase. Now she stretched out her hands to the two awaiting her below. You don't need to tell me, children, was what Aunt Ellen said. She stooped to kiss little Ruth. Little Ruth, who need never now dread the loneliness of the coming years, with the strong right arm to guard her. Little Ruth, who might have gone loverless all her days, had not Aunt Ellen intervened. You don't need to tell me, children, Aunt Ellen repeated. Her eyes met Captain Harry's as he bent his handsome head above her hand. And if, for the moment, her tender, 
half-wistful glance was not so much for him as for another less fortunate lover of long ago. Captain Harry, in his newfound happiness of that St Valentine's Day, was something less than cognizant of the fact. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society The Oddfellows. If you've ever wondered what being a member of The Oddfellows means, we're delighted to be able to share some first-hand answers. My name is Karen and I'm from East Grinstead. The best thing about being a member of The Oddfellows is that there's always someone to talk to if you need help and advice, whether it be a member of your local branch or whether it be the Care and Welfare Helpline or the Citizens Advice Price Helpline. You never feel on your own. Hi, I'm Diana from South London. The best part about being an Arts Fellows mem- member is I feel like I have an extended family to talk to and see them almost daily on Zoom. My name is Colin from Blackpool, and the best thing about being a member. Uh, of the Odd Fellows is that I get to meet uh, a, a broader range of people outside my normal social circle. True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people. They help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, the Odd Fellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. Everyone's welcome. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. That was Ruth at the Crossroads, A Romance of St Valentine's Day by Molly E. Jameson, which was first published in The People's Friend on February 14th, 1916. That story was narrated for us by Fiction Ed Lucy, um, who will not join us for this episode, so we've um, substituted Features Ed Alex instead. Hello, Alex. Hi, Ian. It's almost like you weren't pleased with that introduction. Um, (laughs) We also have joining us uh, Abby from the Fiction team. Hello, Abby. Hello. Less of a question would be nice. (laughs) Uh, And... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we're joined by Barry from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, Barry. Hello. So, Ruth at the Crossroads. Um, it is subtitled uh, A Romance of St. Valentine's Day. Would we call it a romance is maybe a place I'm going to start because we have discussed romance stories uh, on the podcast before and the kind of differing meanings of romance. So there's the kind of Victorian understanding of a romance story, and there's the modern understanding of what a romance is. And I think that this story kind of does half and half, and therefore leaves you a bit disappointed twice over. (laughs) Barry, we'll start with you. Uh, What do you think about the romantic elements of this story? Oh, for goodness sakes. You know, my mum always said, if you've got nothing nice to say, say nothing at all. <laughs> Which isn't going to make much, for much of a podcast. But well, we just have dead uh, air for the next couple of minutes. Yeah, so thanks for joining us, folks. And uh, join us next time. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> um, the romance aspect, I mean, 
is there any? I mean, I'm struggling to see where the romance is in this. Um, it's all a bit contrived. There's a lot of conniving, quite a bit of gaslighting, lying. Or maybe it is romantic. Maybe I'm just misunderstanding. I don't know. But um, I'm not really feeling the love. <laughs> I can tell. I've not been party to some of the conversations about the definition of romance, but this is definitely showing its age, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a setup. It's a good old-fashioned setup that just happens to kind of materialize and turn into something meaningful, but a lot of more words are given to the setup than to any sort of sense of uh, blossoming relationship Yeah, um, between Ruth and Captain Harry, I feel. Um, if you're supposed to not um, tell people the story but show them, this kind of does the opposite. You're very much told what's happening all the way through and there's not an awful lot of dialogue or getting to know people. Not particularly. No, there's, I mean, there's not really much to the characters themselves at all, especially Ruth. I, she's, I think maybe that's the worst part of the story for me is that she's just kind of this little, little girl as they keep calling her, which is a bit weird. Um, <laughs> Enormously condescending. Uh, and she's just very kind of this pure kind of blank canvas, I guess, for her aunt to kind of come in and manipulate things. <laughs> Can I ask everybody, do you get the impression that the writer, whoever Molly E. Jemison is, do you think she likes these characters? <laughs> I don't know. I, I thought when I was reading it, it seemed a little bit like they're not really characters, they're sort of just placeholders. Caricatures. Yeah, yeah like the, there, there yeah. wasn't really much to any of them, and even the implication of this romance that her aunt that ruth's aunt has had in the past is all incredibly vague and uh there there's so little detail like as abby says i don't think you can really tell a single thing about any of them i love the fact that the the long lost love the guy who's living on the other side of the world is actually called miles hath away I mean, how little effort did she put into that character's name? <laughs> that never even occurred to me. No, I didn't pick up on that. That's funny. Absolutely phoned that in. I mean, that is shocking. <laughs> I guess we're supposed to like Captain Harry because we are literally told that we should like Captain Harry. <laughs> most, <laughs> just, he is one of the most agreeable and adaptable visitors. But you're not really, again, you're not really, you're not really convinced of that by any form of literary persuasion you're just told alex are you not convinced by the authentic canadian slang <laughs> and dialogue that, that <laughs> comes into play here right? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't really get a chance to endear himself no i'm honestly kind of worried about how quickly he changed his mind <laughs> yes. yeah there's a section here um where he basically says, I have absolutely no interest in this woman at all. And then about 10 lines later, he goes, yeah, all right. Yeah. Well, he kind of goes, yeah, all right. But what about the Valentine? What? I mean, it just goes along with it, I guess. Well, I've bought her flowers. I might as well marry her. <laughs> I've, I've kind of accidentally <laughs> bought her flowers because he intended them to be for her aunt. Yeah. What I did think um, is... The start of the story seemed to be setting it up a bit like one of those big family sagas. 
Mm. Um, mm. Because it goes into the great big detail about the Westerton family and how long they'd been in this house. Mm. And then the house has absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, and it and it kind of falls into this um, quote-unquote romance thing about trying to get Ruth set up with somebody. But I almost thought that the setup could have been a slightly better story. Yeah. Talking about these sort of spinsters in this place that were worried about their family name dying out and who was going to inherit the house. And mm-hmm. that that seemed to be slightly more interesting to me than the story that Miss um, Jameson actually wrote. Me too. I, I was really, when I f- started reading it, I was really looking forward to it because it, it sounded like it was going to be kind of a gothic um, like you said, like a family saga mm. sort of story. Um, and it just went in a completely different direction. I think maybe the house has more character than the characters. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. You, do, you, want, you want to hear more of that story, don't you? There's two paragraphs mm. when it describes that it, the, it resounded to the noise of happy children and the, the, the long families and generations that have been there. And that's really... And there's all this fascinating stuff that's jammed in and uh, orphan daughters and sailor brothers claimed by the sea. And then mm-hmm. and then it all screeches to a halt when the yeah. actual story of Ruth starts. Ruth ruins this story. This shouldn't be a Ruth story. <laughs> she doesn't even get to say anything, does she? And sort of very, very close to the end where she's like, all right then. All right then. Let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's what that's what kind of that's another thing that kind of creeps me out is that Captain Harry doesn't actually I'm not particularly convinced that he ever really heard anything from Ruth during his time staying there because did she not just sit quietly in the background? Yeah, yeah, I think so. That plays into that scene and not heard element that Abby alluded to earlier of, of her being called a small child at every turn, which is a bit creepy. This is the line that um, she says. Um, She's talking to Harry, Canadian Harry, Harry the Canadian, um, just before he goes. And she says, yes, come back. Aunt Ellen uh, would like to have you come back, Ruth said, and smiled up at him in that half-shy manner which Harry done, though he was not particularly interested in Ruth, had always found rather charming. (laughs) It's an inauspicious way to begin a love story, I would say. Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced that Ruth has ever left the house. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it feels kind of like her aunt's kept her locked up in the house and then felt bad that she's never had any experience outside of the house. Then she's brought this man in and just thought, well, I'll just, we'll just marry her off now and and then she can go on and live her own life. But I don't think she's had any life experience up until this point. No. So I'm a bit worried for Ruth. And it's kind of passed <laughs> off as this, because she's constantly infantilized, it's kind of passed off as this... Oh, she's a sweet little child who um, has lived this sheltered life and not she is an adult who has been kept cloistered in a house falling to pieces with her maiden aunt who then just gets given to some bloke who comes by. This is going to be a very sarcastic episode of the podcast. (laughs) And rightly so. I think I might have to put a disclaimer on this. I mean... Look at the way that's set up, though. I mean, once you get past what looked like it might be, as it's been said, a gothic um, sort of family drama, um, when they talk about bringing a, an officer in to the to the house, 
And Ruth looked a trifle blank. What, again? You know, this seems to be her stock and trade approach to life. But I'm kind of curious as to what Ellen said to the war office. Yeah, yeah, well, we want someone, but he has to be a bachelor between the ages of 19 and 25, preferably Canadian, but civilized. Yeah. Can, can we have an officer, please? That would be lovely. We don't want any, we don't want any rough types. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> oh, yes, please. Yes. <laughs> Somebody with a pension, thank you. Oh, no, no reason, no reason. It's just a, it's a, it's a big house and we've got to fill it. We don't want riffraff. Yes, we need to continue the family line. So. <laughs> I didn't realise that was a service the government offered, to be honest. <laughs> it seems to be. It seems to be. I mean, it's hardly altruistic, is it? I mean, she's talking. It takes quite a high-handed approach, this story about doing your duty for, for God and country, when really it's all done for personal gain. And I'm not sure who's, to be honest, because like we said, I'm not sure Ruth really benefits from this. She's just about to marry this complete stranger and presumably move to Canada. I have no idea. It's not made clear. It's quite a far cry from, I just read a story that, that is going to be in one of our future issues of the magazine uh, that was about um, an aunt and her niece where the aunt was, um, I suppose, she didn't like the term spinster. That was kind of the point of the story. She was just a single lady and she'd stayed so because she'd enjoyed her career and had had a very fruitful and happy life on her own, doing up her house and had been very fulfilled. And this kind of points uh, obviously to the exact opposite, being like such a thing could not possibly happen because we finish with the line about little Ruth. We need never now dread to the loneliness of the coming years with a strong right arm to guard her. Lucky Ruth. This is all also dependent on him surviving the war because he's about to go back again. He's still got a couple of years to go. <laughs> it reminded me of that joke in Blackadder Goes Forth where Baldrick says, we've survived the Great War, 1914 to 1916. <laughs> well, it's actually, I mean, to be honest, part of it reminds me of uh, the Rebecca West novel, the Return of the Soldier, which deals with exactly this, a convalescing soldier, soldier who goes back to the front and you've got to kind of make up your own mind what, what was the kindness done here? Mm -hmm. You know, this guy sounds like he's heading back to the trenches. I'm not sure that's a blessing, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's, they've, got to be, they've got to do their bit, even though, you know, that doing their bit benefits them, apparently. There's also no real mention of what he's convalescing from because there's no chat of him having a wound or some sort of disability. I don't even think he's got a walking stick. I think he's had a personality change, to be honest with you. <laughs> I think he's become sort of mid-19th century aristocrat. I've had a jolly times here, Miss Ruth, and now it's more than a bit rotten saying goodbye. That's genuine <laughs> Canadian, that I, perfect dialect. All she's missed out is the bit that says A at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even do that. <laughs> After all, I shan't be so very far away. What? Where? Where are you from, man? Yeah, I think the story goes back and forward between... For me, when I was reading it, I couldn't figure out when it was set sometimes just because of that, that kind of speech. So it did feel a little bit like it was set way before <laughs> when it was written. <laughs> It definitely does. I mean, Molly E. Jameson, this is a surprising thing to me, is a really well-known writer and worked with The Friend and among many other publications for many years. And this does give the impression that she's rehashed something from the late 19th century and just brought it up to date. 
or I say she, I've no idea who this person is. I couldn't find them. I assume it's a, a pseudonym. But I don't know about anyone else, but do you not find there's something incongruous about the name Molly E. Jameson? There's something about it that just sounds very grounded to me. And I'm, I wasn't expecting gritty realism, mm. but I wasn't expecting this kind of florid nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> I think she does. See, I think she does some of the descriptions quite mm. well, but it's just because you don't care about the characters that it doesn't really sink in. There's some good romantic language. There's, I don't know, she sounds like she's got the potential to write something romantic but just this isn't it like she met at the vet where aunt ellen meets ruth eyes and the radiant triumphant wistful it sounds like she's got the the kind of florid language in her arsenal but um i don't know she's just not connecting the pieces i feel like the bits are there but she's just not able to put it together to produce something convincingly romantic it feels almost like an outline um especially because the characters aren't very well developed it, it feels like she's got this setup that she wants to write about and she's sort of playing around with an idea or something it, it just doesn't feel like it's fully mm -hmm. there as a story <laughs> yeah i think barry's idea is quite interesting that uh or we've kind of organically arrived at the idea that it might have been something that she'd written before and just decided to mm. quote unquote update because she needed to, she was wanting to sell a story to the friends, so she's changed a couple of the details. And Harry previously fought in Crimea, and then now he's fighting in World War One. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's really done his bit, hasn't he? We can ask no more of Harry. He's done. And Paul Ruth in that house for that long. <laughs> what would you think if this story were submitted to the magazine today? Uh, what would you What would you say to the author? Uh, to try to get them to punch it up to something that could be published today? Probably something to do with the fact that if Ruth is supposed to be one of the romantic parts of the story, then her character needs to be developed more and she also needs to be an agent in her own life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, she needs to be the one forward in the story. And I, I just don't think we would have that kind of strange mix-up at the end i just don't think that would work in a story now um no it comes across as quite creepy now yeah where well, the valentine's gift is meant for the aunt and then he just decides well yeah okay i'll i'll just go with the niece that's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah some stronger characters and maybe just kind of take the aunt out of it <laughs> do you think it would have worked better if he had gone off with the aunt do you think that's like the last third of it would have worked better if they'd gone on that presumption rather than because there seems to be something deeper between them than there does between yeah it did feel a bit like something like that was hinted at mm. um, with the whole valentine thing and then nothing ever comes of it mm. I think it was more than hinted wasn't it uh, a box of sweetly scented purple violets <laughs> among the delights of which Aunt yeah. Ellen fairly reveled until calmer thoughts came upon her Wow, that's pretty racy. It really is. Some purple, purple violets or some purple prose. I mean, goodness me, she's covered all bases there, hasn't she? I wonder if we looked up the, because um, there's a language of flowers, isn't there? So I wonder if we looked up what the meaning of purple violets well, would be. Well, I'm just ahead of you there, to be honest, Ooh. because not long after that, I believe, the Evening Telegraph actually did a whole piece on violets. And... Um, they are about as insipid as you imagine. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, they're not exactly you know, roses. No, there's actually got some interesting um, connotations, mainly surrounding sort of purity, chastity, although um, they are worn at weddings and funerals, I believe. So, you know, take your pick. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I, I did enjoy the, uh, the bit at the end, though, where um, Aunt Ellen all all unaware of the pleasant tete-a-tete just before Harry left the first time. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a pleasant tete-a-tete. It was the most awkward dialogue in the whole... I mean, there wasn't much in the way of dialogue, but what there was, this was awkward as hell. I, I was I was actually glad she interrupted at that point. It was about the one thing I, I would agree with Molly E. Jameson on. Thank goodness you spared us from this horrible awkwardness. <laughs> it's the way he kind of... Um doesn't say he like leans down and i just imagine him sort of looming over over her, like in a personal space and it, it's just um it's just not a i think it's supposed to be a romantic image and maybe at the time it was but it's just not <laughs> it's not something you would want now we've encountered this sort of thing a couple of times on the podcast because our last episode was a story called a deal in hearts where a man and his uncle um wind up on holiday in the same place uh, and they're both pursuing this young girl. Uh, and then towards the end of the story, the, the chap just says to his uncle, how about you go for her aunt and I'll have her and I'm sure it'll all be fine. And they sort it out in the bar in the hotel over a drink. And like the last <laughs> line of the story is, is literally the uncle says, I do hope um, they'll make the sensible decision or something along those lines. And then oh the, the final line is, and before the holiday was over, they had. Well, good for them. I really want to see how that story, how that conversation went, where they go up to and say, say so how about him instead and, and you and I can get married? And yeah, okay. Um, so we have encountered this sort of thing before where um, relationships are rather negotiable in a way that I think perhaps are not in the present day. It was interesting the point Harry made there when you get the impression that you see like Harry is physically looking down on little Ruth. Um, and that's kind of reflected in the illustration which accompanies this story. Um, I assume you guys, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a, an illustration um, at the top near the title. And it covers a part of the text near the beginning, basically describing little Ruth's move from uh, childhood to girlhood, from girlhood to shy and demure womanhood. And the illustration, it's taken from a perspective slightly above this this woman who doesn't look at all demure or that young. She looks almost middle-aged and quizzical, which is really an odd choice of an illustration. Um, Ian, I assume, will do something magical online and maybe make this visible to other people. But Indeed. across the page, there's, there is another illustration and it's for um, Hall's wine um, which is a tonic for overstrain and the, the picture that goes with that is actually more in keeping with the story <laughs> this, this sort of <laughs> bedraggled <laughs> poor looking woman um, I wonder if the artist just had an off day and went maybe swapped them around by mistake I don't know they had too much of the Hall's wine before they were sitting down to do it well you can get enough of this Ian. Um, because overstrain especially in wartime is a serious condition Although I think it was a bit of a strange one to have overstrain um, right beside a, a story about uh, an injured soldier. Seems a slightly distasteful, but I, I don't know. I did actually have a conversation in a previous episode um, about 
the way that war stories were kind of treated in the early days of the war because everybody thought it was going to be over by Christmas and then by the following Christmas and they obviously didn't know that it was going to drag out for so long. So some of the stories that appear in the beginning, near the beginning of the war, are quite, I, I want to say kind of flippant, kind of a bit lighthearted in a way that as the years kind of go on and the war is still grinding on, they, that kind of disappears because people have obviously figured out that there's this is not as optimistic a time as they perhaps thought it was. Mm. I don't know where this falls particularly because this is 1916, so this is slap bang in the middle of the war. It does seem quite... The war is incidental to it completely because mm. Harry being a soldier means absolutely nothing apart from the fact he's able to move into somebody's house without any social <laughs> furore. And just remember how adaptable he is, whatever that. And he's indeed an adaptable. <laughs> you can take him to Europe and you don't need to put one of those plug things in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's an interesting point, Ian, because I'm not really sure where this story fits. And indeed, there's a a small joke, I guess, I want to say, just at the end of this. So the, the, the story itself doesn't quite fill all the, the column uh, it's in its last column. So at the bottom underneath it, there is a, I guess it's a joke. I'll read it to you. You can, see, you can decide for yourselves. And it's, Fond mother, I, dear lad, there's not a day passes but what I think of you in that awful submarine with only the periscope to breathe through. And that's it. That's the joke. Um, I guess it's kind of funny, but it just feels a bit out of place off the back of this this story and this time. Yeah. I just the two together just kind of great. Yeah, World War One submarines not really a thing I'd be joking about the safety of either. No, no, no not at all. <laughs> it doesn't really play a role in this story, does it? The war. It's kind of in, like you said. It's kind of incidental. I'm not really feeling a an imminent sense of threat in it at all um i don't know it's just not there it's not a character in this story it's not part of the background no it's it's I, I don't yeah know. it's not even like a part of the background like apart from the fact that harry is a soldier and he has to go off to this barracks yeah. but this barracks is just down the road so he's not really going anywhere yeah um, and there's no chat of how he got injured or what his injury is um, I think he's referred to as an invalid uh, once, but it doesn't say what he's... I mean, he could have stubbed his toe or something, cut himself shaven. But does this just reflect the fact that World War One never really made it to... As far as I know, never really made it to British shores, whereas World War Two comes into stories much more because obviously it literally came to our shores and our doorsteps. No, we'd, uh, we'd experienced bombing by this point. By airship really? and um, several. I mean, I think there was a blockade by this point as well in the war, with a loss, large loss of life of merchant seamen. So, it oh. it hit home, and it was prevalent in the the people's friend as well. All the way through, the the war makes its presence felt. From I mean, the adverts again. I'll come back to the halls wine again. What we're talking about is uh, this this Ruth who has nothing else going on in her life, and like anyone else, you would expect maybe. In, in that context, might have signed up to do something, working in armaments or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, 
the, the whole is wine advert. It's you know, thousands of people have jumped into war work. This is why they're feeling this overstrain. And yet, on the pages opposite, here's the exact, you know, here's this, this girl and this woman who have done literally nothing but invite one Canadian soldier for their own ends, you know, and probably at the expense of somebody more deserving uh, into their lives. But no, the, the war was definitely, um, it was making its presence felt all the way through the magazine. Is that perhaps a, a class thing then, that maybe the authors, maybe the higher classes weren't as involved? I don't know. Maybe it betrays the author. I think you're right. I, I, I think it betrays, I, I, I'll come back to it. I'm half, I'm like more than halfway convinced that this is a, a rehash of something. Yeah. We don't have that category in the podcast for, for rehashes. Um, <laughs> so we're going to have to soldier on for want of a better oh, phrase. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> you can also just make the point as well. You, you, um, you published another Molly E. Jameson story last year on the website, and it's called The Little May Girl. That's right. And and I actually I had to go and read this because I thought this was, I'm going to be honest with you, I thought as a work of satire, this was peerless, this, this particular story, um, because I, I really thought this is the only way this works. <laughs> the story of Ruth and, and Ellen, it's the only way it works. It's, it's some sort of satire on, on romantic language, on romantic stories. It's not, so it doesn't work. But I, I thought, I'll go and read some more Molly E. Jameson just to see if this is typical of her work. And it entirely is exactly the same story almost got a wounded foreign soldier with an unconvincing dialect, more florid prose, grey eyes, casual misogyny, um, <laughs> and a, an extreme dislike for for her female, or their female characters. Um, yeah, it's all very strange. I have no idea why this person was so popular. The Molly Jameson story writing <laughs> toolkit. An injured soldier, grey eyes. It, it feels very much out of the box, yeah. Have you ever met anyone with grey eyes, by the way? No, and I wouldn't marry them. <laughs> I don't know if you'd be immediately taken with them in the way that people seem to be, but I just, the because her eyes are mentioned so often, I'm just thinking, I don't think I've met a single person with grey eyes. No, I don't think I have. Has she invented a whole subset of people? <laughs> no, I, don't, I think they, I'm pretty sure my dad has grey eyes. Oh, wait, have to check. maybe grey-eyed people are exempt from war duty. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some romantic... <laughs> Films and books from the past 10 years even are now quite problematic. <laughs> kind of when you rewatch a rom-com, you sometimes think, mm, would this really work in real life? So maybe there's an element of that where it's it, it wasn't exactly true to life, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of story, but it kind of appealed for some reason to the audience at that, that time. That kind of hyper hyper real thing that rom-coms do where it's meant to be like it's representing real mm. life but it's turned up to 11 and people are doing things that real people wouldn't get away with yeah do you know what this you know what film this reminds me of what's that this reminds me of singing in the rain that bit where uh, don and lena are watching the dueling cavalier premiere and are basically laughed out of the cinema because one because of the sound problems, but two because the the script is so overbearingly florid and purple and romantic and ridiculous. It, that's that's the impression I'm left with, and that's the impression we're going to leave everyone else with. I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, after all that, we have come to the part of the podcast where we have to give this story a score out of 10. And I'm I'm deeply concerned at the score that this is going to achieve, but uh, we've committed to this bit, so we're going to have to go ahead. Um, Alex, we'll start with you. Uh, so I don't know you, I don't think you've been on season two yet. So just a, a score out of 10 for your general enjoyment, uh, you can decide whether or not uh, to take into account how well the story was written or the the points it was making or characterization, plot, those sorts of things, um, and just give us a number. The, uh, the story that scores the highest at the end of the season will be reprinted in the magazine um, in the summer. So these scores are important, but I'm going to suggest that your score you give this one probably won't make it a winner. <laughs> I don't know. This is very interesting, but for all the wrong reasons. So I'm going to give this one a three. That seems fair. Um, Abby, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I was also thinking a three and possibly just for the opening few <laughs> paragraphs. And then it goes downhill from there. <laughs> and Barry, I, I presume you've been nursing your score for the last... 35 minutes or so, what do you have for us? I too will give it a 3 and I'm basing that purely on the enjoyment of giving it a kicking <laughs> quite frankly <laughs> Excellent, well that's it for this episode so it just remains for me to say thank you to Alex, Barry and Abby for joining me and thank you to Lucy for narrating the story and thank you for listening and until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you Cheerio Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £6, and that special offer is available until May 31st, 2022. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Hasty back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure. The friend to friends in trouble recommend. They won't be happy till they get the friend.